the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. There's an odd contrast in crime stats that we want to spend some time talking about today. It's that while crime overall continues a decades-long downward trend, violent crime is up and more intense and still plaguing cities like Detroit, where a recent spate of random and multiple shootings really raises questions about what's happening. We'll talk today with two national experts who can put it all in context, and we'll hear from you. That's next on Detroit Today. But right now, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So when you think about crime and communities that endure a lot of crime, you may think of, of course, places like Detroit, where if you live here, it's something that shapes a lot of the things that uh, you might decide to do or not do, places you might go or not go. And certainly it dominates part of the narrative in the city, the news that comes out of the city, the things that we talk about with our neighbors and our friends. But the truth is that, at least nationwide, over the last four decades, crime and violent crime are actually way down. Between the 1990s and 2014, crime, including violent crime and murders, fell by more than 50% all across the country. And it's really hard to know why. Criminologists are constantly debating the roots of this decline. But of course, again, crime is also about perception and the way people feel. And when we experience spates of crime, especially violent crime, it can really change the way that we think about the places that we live. Violent crime is generally up over the last year. And that's both in major cities like New York and Chicago and much smaller Michigan counties and cities like Grand Rapids, Detroit, and Oakland County. In Detroit, especially we've seen a recent spate of shootings, some of them random, some of them uh, of the multiple kind of incident where we are kind of scratching our heads about where this comes from. These are not the kinds of things that we're used to seeing in the city of Detroit when it comes to crime. So the question is, why is this happening? And the question after that is, what should we be doing about it? How should we be thinking about the people who are victims of these crimes? How much of this can be pinned on our reactions to the pandemic and the tremendous loss of life we've had? And how much of it is simply a result of 
the poverty and the disinvestment that we have seen over decades in cities like Detroit. Again, if you live here, this is a really personal issue. It's really close in. It defines all kinds of things that you decide each day about how you live your life. So today, we want to put this in some national context. Talk about what's happening here and how it compares to or is influenced by the things we see all across the country. That's where we begin the conversation today, and we've got two great guests to help us sort through it. Ames Grauert is senior counsel at the Brennan Center's Justice Program, which is a nonprofit law and public policy institute. Ames, welcome to Detroit Today. Also with us is Abine Clayton. Uh, she is a reporter uh, on the Guardian's Guns and Lies in America project. Uh, Abine, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Ames, I want to start with you. Uh, give us a little context. Crime, as I said, has been falling for decades. Why is that happening? But also talk about violent crime, which is now going up for the past year. Talk about how bad that really is and what some theories are about what's been going on. Do we have Ames with us? We don't have Ames with us. Okay, uh, so Abine, I'm going to start with you then. Uh, let's let's talk about some of the myths about uh, violence in this country. Uh, what is going on in cities like Detroit, where we see uh, an increase in in violent crime, and uh, why are we why are we experiencing these things? Yeah. So over the past um, probably ten or more years before the pandemic hit, um, violent crime specifically, you know, homicides and gun violence um, that I mainly cover had been on a steady decrease across the nation. And um, I am based in California. So I often um, covered and worked in cities like Oakland and Richmond that similarly to Detroit had had um, longstanding disinvestment that people um, would often describe as like, that came off to some people as like apathy towards violent crime mm. in some of these cities, right? And there wasn't a lot of coverage of the sustained decrease in gun violence across the nation and what that means, what was working, you know, what sort of resources people still needed. So when you know, mid 2020 around there came, gun violence began to tick up kind of rapidly in a lot of places. And by the end of the year across the U.S. in nations, excuse me, in cities, big and small, you know, run by Republicans and Democrats alike, there was um, an a, across the board over 30 percent unprecedented increase in gun violence, particularly it was um, described as a crime wave. And I think that lended itself to a lot of racist and um, overtly politicized rhetoric about why it happened. A lot of people assumed people, you know, really gross stuff, people taking an opportunity mm -hmm. while police are busy with COVID to shoot each other, which any criminologist may tell you, like, that's not why violence happens. So I think that that increase, that unprecedented increase in 2020 that looks like it lasted through 2021 is something that we're going to be picking apart for 
years to come. And now that there is more dedicated gun violence um, research money from the federal government, we might get some um, better answers on this increase than we got on the decrease. Yeah. So there are a lot of reasons that people think it increased. One of the primary ones is this kind of um, is, you know, economic stress and, um, you know, social stress from the pandemic, these early days of not knowing what works. People are still ripening down their groceries, not knowing when they could go back to work. And additionally, there was a serious loss of these kind of like um, extracurricular, if you will, spaces. It's not home. It's not work. It is a, but it serves as a refuge. It could be your friend's house. It could be a community center. It could be school for a lot of young folks who are um, most at risk of being shot or shooting someone themselves. There are these additional places that folks who work in violence prevention could find people, you know, or even just these places that exist to decrease that stress. Those were wiped out. You know, you couldn't go in and see some of the community folks you lean on in person. You know, you might have had to see them outside of a door, um, you know, waving at you as they as they drop groceries off. And I think that had um, a really large impact on some of the increase that we saw, just the loss of um, shared safe spaces and a lot of violence intervention programs having to move mm-hmm. indoors, limiting their capacity, having to address people's basic needs, you know, before they could really dig into that in-depth intervention. And I think that had a large impact that will, like I said, will still be teasing apart in the um, year and likely decade to come. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We do have uh, Ames Grauert with us now. He's a senior counsel at the Brennan Center's uh, justice program. Uh, Ames, uh, I want to have you talk about the the national context here. Crime has been falling for decades. Uh, Why is that happening? But then talk about this violent crime trend that's bouncing back upward, uh, how bad it really is and what some of the theories are for why that's been happening. Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. And I'm sorry for the technical difficulties That's on okay. my end. No it's entirely my fault. <laughs> um, so you're exactly right in what you describe, uh, violent crime trending downward for or decades. Um, this is something that sociologists, criminologists call the, the so-called great crime decline. And uh, people of all disciplines have studied it for years to try to tease apart how something so dramatic can happen. And to give you an idea of, of what we're looking at, we're looking at uh, a roughly halving of American murder rates uh, and significant declines in violent crime and property rates, or property crime rates between roughly 1990 and 2014. Mm. The change was especially dramatic in American cities and in New York City, um, where, where I'm based. Uh, the city saw more than 2,000 murders in, uh, in 1990. In 2020, even with the violent crime increases we're going to talk about, um, the, the figure was around 450. Mm. It's, it's a complete transformation in urban spaces and American life. Uh, despite that, it is dimly understood. <laughs> uh, my, my colleagues at the Brennan Center released a report in 2015 called What Caused the Crime Decline that, that looked at some of the explanations for why crime might have dropped so sharply. And ultimately, they concluded they could explain only part of it. Um, one of their critical findings, I think, um, is that there's only so much of this decline that you can attribute to the growth in incarceration. Um, after a certain point, uh, there's a real diminishing return in the, in the use of prisons in the United States. And we, we cannot, you will hear people claim that the, you know, why crime decline was the growth of the American prison system. And that, that just does not appear to be true. Hmm. Um, instead, rising economic conditions seem to have uh, played a real major part in it. 
um, as well as um, some some modifications in the way that police uh, use resources, like uh, the development of CompStat, which is a sort of uh, a, a data-driven methodology of policing, um, mm-hmm. helped helped law enforcement concentrate on you know where resources are needed most. Uh, but you know, there's still a lot that we don't understand and may never understand about you know, why crime declines so sharply. Um, However, uh, we are now in, in, a, in a slightly different place, uh, despite the fact that you know, crime and violent crime hit uh, record lows in the year 2014. After then, we saw some, uh, the beginning of some increases in the violent crime and murder rate. And then, um, a- as noted earlier, um, the homicide rate or the murder rate jumped by roughly 30% nationwide in 2020. Um, curiously, the property crime rate didn't. We normally expect these metrics to move roughly together, and that just didn't happen. I'd, I'd chalk it up to the pandemic. Um, but one of the more w- one important thing to understand about this, and something that uh, Abne hit on, is uh, there's there's a there's a way of talking about the 2020 murder increase that uh, situates it entirely in American cities, and this is not just wrong, but I think it's a it's a way of of presenting crime uh, in, in a frankly racist context and, and trying to blame crime and rising crime on um, communities of color and, and you know, the denser parts of, of American communities. And it's, it's also just not true across every political alignment of the country, across every geographic breakdown of the country, northeast, southwest, uh, homicides rose just around the country. There, there's no real way to um, break out the data to fit a predetermined narrative about politics or uh, and, and certainly no way to, to blame it on you know, one, uh, one, one sort of side of the country. Uh, th- this is a really important point, so I just want to dwell on it a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we recently saw there was an article in the Wall Street Journal where, um, that covered the dramatic increase in murders in rural America. And it seemed like it was the first time that people had really heard of this. <laughs> uh, those of us who have been studying the data were, were aware of it, but it, it just bears repeating that what we were really looking at in 2020 is a, an increase in murders across all aspects and all types of American life. Uh, and that means it's an, it's an American problem calling for American solutions. Yeah. So, so that... Um, I, I want to talk a little more about race, Abine, and both you and Ames have have brought it up. Uh, Abine, you you directly said, "Look, there there are some really racist suggestions about what's what's going on." Talk about what those are, but then also talk about what we as African Americans are experiencing and dealing with in cities like Detroit. I have to say, look, I've lived most of my life here in in Detroit, and it's always been uh, a place where where crime shaped our lives in a way that uh, doesn't in in other places. What we're seeing right now in the city is something different from what I'm used to seeing. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was a 19 year old young man who was literally wandering around uh, the northwest part of the city, uh, just shooting people he came across, random people that he didn't know. Um, that's not the kind of crime that we're used to dealing with mm. here in in Detroit. And um, and it's not the kind of crime I think you, you, you typically see in cities. So, Abine, I want you to talk about these racist suggestions that are being made about what's happening, but also what the effect is on black people, uh, brown people who live in cities like Detroit or Chicago and um, and what we're to make of all of that. Yeah, that um, those are some really great points. I think that 
the kind of racist suggestions and kind of stereotypes that I heard very early on were the same ones that kind of brought me to gun violence coverage in the first place. There was um, this belief, you know, or this kind of understanding of gun violence in gun violence that happens in, you know, what I call hoods across America. These are mm. lower income black and brown communities, the type of places that um, people will invoke when they're trying to um, skirt genuine conversations about gun laws. You know, they'll say, well, what about Chicago? Look what's happening happening in Oakland. Look at what's going on in Detroit and these sort of places, you know, and, and it's very um, thinly veiled coded language for like, well, look at all these black people and brown people. They're shooting each other all the time and y'all not mad, which is a completely ridiculous notion and flies in the face of, um, like you mentioned, what the impact of living, experiencing gun, living through, excuse me, experiencing gun violence is like for the people who bear the brunt of this entire nation's kind of gun violence problem. I really have an issue with the idea that, you know, we see these images, um, you know, especially when we saw homicides start increasing in 2020, we saw images of usually, unfortunately, young Black and Latino men on either sides of the gun and people immediately, um, you know, went to kind of old understanding of understandings of gun violence that would tell the uninformed mm -hmm. that folks who live in these communities are either at worst, um, you know, um, encouraging of of homicides and having their young folks carry guns and at and at the very least and least offensive are just apathetic to it, you know, have just kind of thrown up their hands and said, well, this happened here and there's not much we can do about it when I know that's not the truth. You know, I came from a community that had an outsized level of gun violence for years and I would hear the way people talked about it. And I'm like, but you're not, you know, and to me, I was seeing community folks who went to school board meetings, went to city council meetings, pleaded for urban gardens, were trying to do anything they can holistically to decrease the gun violence and the excuse me, and those sort of efforts were never um, acknowledged. So I saw that same thing going on in 2020. It's a very old playbook that I feel like exploded yeah. because the rate of gun violence increased so much. Mm. And the impact that had on communities was, um, it was catastrophic. You know, we were already hemorrhaging young Black folks. Um, particularly, I focus a lot on, on the Black community and we were already hemorrhaging young folks from um, homicides and a lot of yes. the target ages for violence interventionists dropped you know they were usually focusing on you know 19 to 24 this age where you kind of age out of these high school programs and age out of youth programs they were looking for kids as young as 15 who were carrying these guns you know what i'm saying kids home alone having to you know having to navigate their neighborhoods without the safety of school and administrators who started who picked up guns you know straight up that's that's what happened and the reasons behind that are things like i said that will be teased apart but one thing that i keep hearing from people who care and work in these communities um, is that there's just a level of desperation that they have not seen before, a level of I, um, I am hurt, I am sad about what's going on in my community, and right now the only tools I have are to say I don't care about my life or yours, I'm picking up this gun and I'm doing what I have to do, and no one makes that decision just because they want to hurt another person. That's a trauma response, you know, yes. and 
these communities have been traumatized for years down to like a molecular level, you know, this kind of stress that happens when you walk past a vigil, when you hear gunshots, when you hear people talking about it, you don't even have to have someone shot in front of you for that to start to um, really degrade your spirit, honestly, you know, and you start to look at yourself and your community in a way that makes you wonder if you really deserve to be alive because of the disinvestment and because of the way people talk about where you're from. So I saw that on a really high level, unfortunately, especially in 2020. And the effect that had on communities is just, it's traumatizing, you know, and, and folks were largely left to pick up the pieces to support, you know, homicide victims' families on their own and out of their pocket. So, I mean, the impact has just been, you know, there, it, it goes beyond words sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're gonna continue this uh, conversation about violence, uh, violent crime, uh, cities like Detroit, where we are experiencing a spike in violent crime, what it means, what it feels like to be here right now, kind of enduring what's going on and what the national context is for all of this. Uh, Crime continues to go down, but uh, there is this bump in violent crime that uh, is affecting every place. But uh, I think when we think about things here in the city of Detroit, we think specifically about uh, all of the violence that uh, that we have seen, especially this summer. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and tell us what you think about the crime that we see, not just in the city of Detroit, but all over the metro area. Uh, are you more concerned about it than you were maybe a few years ago? Uh, Do you think guns and the prevalence of guns have something to do with uh, the spike in violent crime? Do you live in a community where crime seems worse than it did just a few years ago? And what are the things you think we need to be doing to lower violent crime, to reverse that trend? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. We will be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about crime and violent crime in particular, whether it's going up, whether it's going down, and the way that we experience those trends uh, in our own lives, in the sort of close-in spaces where we operate and make decisions about our lives. We've got two really great guests help us sort all of that out. Uh, Ames Grauert is a senior counsel at the Brennan Center's Justice Program, and uh, Abney Clayton is a reporter on The Guardian's Guns and Lies in America Project. We also want to hear from you on the phones uh, and on social. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Call and tell us what you make of Uh, the way we are experiencing and enduring crime here in Metro Detroit right now. 
after the pandemic, the the spike in violent crime. Uh, also give us a sense of what you would do uh, to make things better, to reverse that trend. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Let's start today with uh, Alberta in Detroit. Alberta, welcome to the show. What a show, what a show, what a show. Thank you so much to you and your guests. Yeah, no, thank you for calling in. Yes, sir. I just want to say a couple of things. Number one, most of the times the media will talk about who's number one in murders this year, who's number one in crimes this year. I don't give a damn if it's Detroit, Chicago, or L.A. It doesn't matter. There should be no number one, and that is not how they should be reporting crime. I also want to say that it's so important that our young people choose their friends very carefully and wisely. I spent five years of my life when I first got out of college working at the Race Counseling Center. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, while not always exclusively for the vast majority of those cases, it was someone that people are familiar with, the person was familiar with. And oftentimes that's the same thing when it comes to crime. We must begin to celebrate the good in our community. And let me say this to you, brother. Last two weeks ago, we had the largest parade ever at Mac Alive. Over 2,000 people marched down Mac Avenue. Mm -hmm. Typically, when you think of Mac, the first thing that comes to your mind is Mac and (laughs) Bewick. The the, the challenges that people face to hang out there every day. But I need to tell you that Mac is alive. And it was so alive that day. We sent out press releases done by a professional to every single media outlet in Detroit, and not a one bothered to cover the peace, the harmony, the unity that folks showed walking down Mac that day. Wow. And therein lies the problem. I know and you know when it bleeds, it leads. But that's part of the problem. We need to celebrate who we are and recognize the fact that we are better than anything these folks are reporting. Uh, Alberta, as always, I really appreciate you calling and and adding that really important perspective. Um, context for Ames and Abene. Alberta is a former city council member here in uh, in Detroit, and also a former state legislator, a lifelong Detroiter who lives uh, in the same East Side neighborhood where where she grew up near uh, Mac Avenue, and uh, is really involved in in trying to build that that community uh, response, I think, to the things that are going on and, and shape the community in a way that uh, that prevents some of these things from going on. She's also uh, someone who participates pretty frequently in the, in the program here. She calls uh, and, and drops her own knowledge uh, of, of things that are going on. But, but Ames Grauert, I, I want to give you a chance to, to respond to what Alberta was talking about there. Yeah, I think Alberta made some extremely important points. I think it is really a problem how the media can tend to sensationalize violence, um, which makes it all the more important that we have smart and thoughtful conversations like the one today. Um, we, we really do go amiss when we start to uh, focus just on the bad news coming out of our communities and focus just on you know ranking who's the top in violence, who's the bottom in violence, and instead we need to be thinking more about you know what actually is happening in our communities and how can we support them. And, and I think Alberta's work, and as you described, also points to uh, an important solution you know, for uh, an unfortunate reality that we know about uh, crime and violent crime in the United States is that it's very concentrated, and in some places the great crime decline that I described never really happened. Uh, if you look at communities that saw 
uh, violence spiked significantly in 2020. Many of them are communities that have struggled with violence for the past 25 years, and even longer in some cases. Um, and those communities, in many cases, they, they, they don't lack for determined, dedicated people doing their best to improve their communities. They do sometimes lack for the government support to help make those programs as successful as they could be. Um, and I, I know, I believe we're going to talk more about um, how government can support community leaders in that work. But I, I just want to note at, at the top that, you know, the, the, some of the solutions to crime and violent crime don't come from Congress, don't come from, um, you know, the, the, the state house. They come from people who are dedicated and are building, you know, community violence intervention programs, uh, summer jobs programs, things like that. And uh, it's government's job to support that work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, Alberta, always love to hear from you here on the program. Thanks for calling. Let's go next to Jerry in Dearborn. Jerry, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, I think what happened in Detroit is that the black middle class is gone. They're, 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 chasing, they're chasing the white man, and they're moving they moved to, to uh, uh, Farmington Hills and to Southfield. Mm. What that does is leaves a, a lower class to commit crimes. Now, if I were the yeah, crimes are in, in, in Detroit, what I would do is I would use stop and frisk, stress decoy teams, and big four cruisers. Now, I would not be popular, but... <laughs> you would not be popular, done, Jerry. <laughs> when I got done, you would be able to walk down seven miles and no, at 2 o'clock in the morning, and nobody would bother you. Mm. Another thing I would do is in every, in every schoolroom in Detroit... I would put up banners that, that say, do not kill, do not steal, do not lie. I believe those things would work in Detroit. Mm. Another thing, if you want to compare cities, El Paso and Detroit have about the same population, but it's a difference in who the minorities are. And, and, and the minorities in, in El Paso are brown people. In 2020, they had 26 murders. In Detroit, it's black people who are the, who the, or the majority. In, in Detroit, there were 326 murders. And so, Jerry, you know... That's the difference in people. Well, I appreciate your, your calling, but there were a number of things you said, of course, that I feel like we've got to address. Prime among them, this idea that somehow... The fact that Detroit is majority African American uh, is is what drives crime, and that somehow there is something endemic, uh, you know, about that. Um, Abney, I want to I want to go back to the beginning of of Jerry's call, though, mm-hmm. uh, where he he talks about um, this idea of you know things like stop and frisk and the need to. To be very aggressive uh, uh, in in policing. Policing is something you've take taken a real close look at in your work. Um, of course, nationally. I mean, we're having a conversation uh, about policing, uh, about over policing, about the effects of over policing, about the effects of policing itself on uh, black and brown communities. I wanted you to address uh, first what what Jerry was. Saying about what, how he would solve how he would solve the problem. Yeah, um, a part of me kind of feels where Jerry is coming from. You know what I'm saying? Like people, especially older folks, are so tired. Mm. You know what I'm saying? They're so tired of seeing generations of. I don't know if this is Jerry's perspective. You know what I'm saying? I'm throwing a little spin on it. I will admit. <laughs> Let me throw that caveat out there in the first place. You know what I'm saying? But um, Old folks 
older people, people 60 and up who have seen it all, done it all, they are tired of what's going on. You know, they've seen decades, if you probably added up centuries of potential loss Mm -hmm. over, you know, lost over sometimes really petty arguments and split second decisions and someone's last words before pulling a trigger being like, I got something for you. You know what I'm saying? You're not going to mess with me. So a part of me is like, I hate where you're coming from. I've heard the sentiment among a lot of older folks. I do think that um, this kind of desire to go back to some of these tough on crime policies where we are pretty much profiling folks and making decisions based on how someone looks and dresses and where they are on whether or not they're likely to have a gun, which like it might be legal. You know what I'm saying? I feel like we always put the conversation around um, gun violence in inner cities. We put it in a vacuum. This entire nation, you know what I'm saying, was Hmm. built on not built on, but a large part of it is this obsession with guns, you know what I'm saying? And this desire and this, what people feel like is a like God-given right to own a firearm and to use it when they feel they are threatened, whether that threat is real or perhaps imagined in some cases that we've seen, the it's it's there. So I don't want to sit here and talk like, well, Black people just are using their guns and da-da-da, when in fact we are in a nation that is awash mm. with firearms, illegal, legal, no serial numbers, high capacity magazines, et cetera. So I always like to say that, you know what I'm saying? Black folks don't have a a pension for guns and using them on each other. Mm -hmm. I think what Jerry was talking about is suppression. And that is something that we have tried. You know, we've tried to lock the issue away. We've tried to throw folks in, in the paddy wagon, you know, and take them to a penitentiary where they're healing and them coming out a more whole person ready to help their community has not been guaranteed. I know I can say in California, you know, in this kind of 10 year span in the late aughts and coming into the 2010s, um, there was a huge decrease in California's prison population. And that coincided with a decrease that, you know, the concentration remains similar where gun violence was happening the most, like Ames mentioned, remained the same. The cities that had this large gun violence burden, even amid this decrease, it was still concentrated there. But that overall number was less. And at the same time, people were coming out of prison at the same time. The former governor was signing all of these um, policies to get sentences reduced to expand parole giving you know clemency to different folks who have proven themselves to be reformed you know and all of this was happening as gun violence among black folks was decreasing i can't say the same of of, i don't know about detroit but i would argue that suppressing and putting an issue away locking away the folks most likely to be involved in gun violence is a temporary fix that doesn't address the root issues you know i I felt a little more where where jerry was coming from when it came to the schools i think schools have a huge role Hmm. to play in violence prevention that's all often overlooked, you know, that likely goes beyond signs and requires some level of investment and contracts with some violence intervention and healing programs that can have consistent relationships with students. But um, we're not going to suppress, arrest, and surveil our way out of a decades-long issue that has continued to affect the same people like a virus. You know, that's just just not going to happen. And I mean, yeah, the there were some other things he said that I take a little umbrage with, but you yeah. know, I'm gonna I'm I'm let y'all move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and and he was he was talking specifically about some programs here in Detroit that 
you know, you can't say those words, I think, without getting an emotional response. He he referred to stress, which was uh, a late 1960s program in Detroit by the police department called uh, Stop the Robberies, Enjoy Safe Streets. It was, uh, you know... uh, progenitor probably of, of stop and frisk and those kinds of things and, and, and led in uh, many ways to, um, you know, the, the, the pushback from the African-American community that, that elected Coleman Young, our first black mayor in 1973. Um, uh, he, he talked about the Big Four, which was uh, a gang squad that used to ride around in unmarked cars in, in Detroit and, and harass uh, young African-American men, among other things that they did. I mean, we have such a history of these kinds of issues in Detroit. And there are people who think that, uh, that going back to those kind of policies would would help things. I mean, of course, um, uh, you know, as, a li- as almost a lifelong Detroiter, uh, my fear is that those things are about suppression and those things are about rights violations and, and that they don't produce the outcomes uh, that we want anyway. Ames, I, I heard you trying to jump in there. Uh, go ahead. Yes, I, I just wanted to agree with uh, everything you and Abhinay have been saying and just, just add some context from our own uh, experience over here in New York City. You know, New York City had a, a, a very extensive stop and first program with uh, stops uh, peaking in 2011 or so far, and uh, people on the right said, you know, when this program came to an end, as it did late in the de Blasio administration, uh, they, they made very grim predictions about what the future of New York City would look like when stop and frisk finally faded into history. Um, none of those predictions came true. Uh, over the next three years, New York's crime and violent crime and murder rates all reached record low points. Um, the, we, we, we've absolutely tried these sort of uh, suppression strategies, as you described them, and um, they just don't seem to work, uh, and they have massive collateral costs. There's some some research by a sociologist, uh, Bruce Western, who studies the effects of the um, American criminal justice system and has shown that probably as a result of that program, if I had to guess, the, the lifetime risk that uh, a New Yorker has spent time in jail for uh, people of color is significantly higher mm-hmm. than... Uh, than white New Yorkers. Uh, It's important, I guess is what I'm getting at, that that when we talk about strategies like stop and frisk, uh, we we talk not just about whether they work or not, and they don't, but that we talk about their enormous effects on communities and the way that they burden people with criminal records Mm -hmm. and follow them for the rest of their life and disrupt community life too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation about crime and violent crime and our city and community here in Southeast Michigan and how it fits into the national context. We're going to keep uh, Ames Groward and uh, Abene Clayton. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Joanne in Birmingham, Matthew in Dearborn. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Hang in there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Talking about crime, violent crime in our community here in Southeast Michigan, how it fits into the national context here on Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, 
And as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guests are Ames Groward, who's a senior counsel at the Brennan Center's Justice Program. Also with us is Abine Clayton. She is a reporter on the Guardian's Guns and Lies in America project. We want to hear from you during the conversation uh, as well. Uh, give us a call and let us know what you think about the recent spike in violent crime that we're experiencing, not just here, but all over uh, the country, and what you think we should be doing that we maybe aren't doing or thinking about that uh, would help reverse those trends. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and uh, make uh, hashtag us at Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. Before we get back to our uh, listeners, uh, Ames, I want to talk a little about incarceration in particular um, and that and, and whether we believe that America's obsession with incarceration is one of the reasons that violent crime actually fell or is incarceration something that fuels crime? In other words, uh, creates a, a criminal class that uh, is sort of in and out of prison and and you know committing crimes when they are when they are not uh, behind bars. Yeah, it's a great question, and there, there's there's certainly a, a, a broad debate over the subject, especially between left and right. But uh, most people, especially if you look at what the country's experienced over the last 20 years, would say that uh, our prison system is far, far too large, and there are far, far too many in people, or far too many people in prison, uh, and that has no response or no direct relationship to public safety. Uh, there's very strong research that says that um, some of the excessive sentences that we levy on people out of a, a misguided belief that they will help deter criminal activity in the first place uh, don't actually serve any purpose, especially after a certain number of years has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that points to the need for you know, restoring and expanding parole programs and building out rehabilitative programs in prisons, which have been neglected for years and years and years. Um, and there's also mounting evidence, and, and you get to this, uh, uh, you, you allude to this, about the criminogenic effect of incarceration. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a new study um, by you know, some of some people we work with at, at Arnold Ventures out of, um, I think it was Kentucky, but I, I want to I make sure of that, uh, but showing that even one night in jail, uh, and this is pretrial incarceration, can have a hugely disruptive effect on someone's life and lead to increased crime down the line. Uh, there's a study um, based on some progressive prosecutors' uh, work in, out of Suffolk County, Massachusetts, in Boston, showing that actually declining to prosecute someone for a misdemeanor can reduce recidivism as well in the long term. And these these all suggest that we may be uh, we we may be asking sort of the wrong questions when we talk about you know does incarceration work? We might be better served to ask uh, what are its costs and do its costs outweigh its benefits? And I'm going to uh, point to one more. Um, reason to ask that question. Uh, my own research that I uh, published with my colleague, Dr. Terry and Craigie, who's an econ- economics professor at Smith College, um, we used a, a national survey sort of data set. And I'd love to get into the details if that was of interest. But, mm. Mm. Uh, but, but showing broadly that um, people who have spent time in prison uh, earn roughly 50% less annually and over the course of their lifetime relative to people who are very, very similar to them. And mm. we can show that in our model, but have not been to prison. Um, you know that suggests that prison records have a real uh, uh, go a long way toward contributing to intergenerational poverty. And when we know that you know who goes to prison is not necessarily a function of who commits crimes, but rather 
uh, who is policed, uh, who is targeted by law enforcement, and who does not have the you know defense they need to, to guarantee their Sixth Amendment right to trial. Um, it suggests that those sorts of harms are are not just you know devastating to individuals, but um, disproportionately affecting communities of color, um, and and may in fact be um, help reinforce some of the the problems of disinvestment that we've been talking about uh, this hour. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go to a caller quickly who I think really fits into exactly what we're talking about right now. Uh, Simon in Madison Heights. Go ahead. Oh, hey. Hey. So, hi. Um, as a product of basically a lot of the criminal justice system, um, I, I grew up in the country, so everything was like 10 years behind down here, mm. Detroit area, up in the thumb. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we got in a fight in high school, the gym teacher would make us run laps or do push-ups, you know. And now, and I found out, like, even in my own timeline, I graduated in 2005, kids were getting, like, criminal cases and, like, like it was asinine, you know. It was just ridiculous. Like, how are you going to ruin a 15-year-old kid's life for fighting for his life against a bully? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's disgusting. That's so, wrong. So, Simon, can you, can you tell me more about... Uh, what you mean when you say you're pretty much a product of the of the criminal well, justice system? My mom system? worked at uh, the county courthouse, and you know I got caught with weed when I was 18, and all the busybodies in her office, like, oh, who was in that orange jumpsuit? I was never even fitted for an orange jumpsuit. It was a PR, PR bond, and as I was walking out of the courtroom, I signed up on the ballot initiative for uh, medical marijuana because, like, it helped me calm down. You know. <laughs> And, and talk about that that incident and what yeah, I mean, the way it changed the way you think about that. People are still that. away yeah. in jail about stuff that's legal now, and like it still hasn't been fully repaired. Yeah, yeah, it uh, hasn't, and it probably never will be. That's like a line that gets like drawn in the sand on your permanent record, you know. Mm. But uh, yeah, Simon, I, I'm, I, uh, I'm driving to work. So, <laughs> okay, well, good luck with that and, and concentrate on the road. But uh, but I really do appreciate you calling in and giving us that example. Abine, that really does go to uh, what you were saying earlier about the the ubiquitous nature of these problems that uh, that the crime itself, but also our response to crime and the criminalization of uh, of Americans is something that that lots of people deal with in inside cities and outside them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that um, you know the caller just said a word that was like really important when you're talking about the criminal justice system and even people who have been arrested for things that remain illegal, you know, but have served their time and um, are trying to move on with their lives. It's just the word repair, you know what I'm saying? So often things happen in communities, people are shot, most people who are shot survive. So people are dealing, you know, with insurmountable costs and energy, excuse me, and injuries. And then at the same time, you have people who get out of incarceration for, you know, who knows what, who then don't get any sort of reparation you know when i say that i'm not necessarily talking about um well it actually i don't actually feel the need to kind of defend that there's no sort of reparation there's no sort of um institution or place available that will give folks what they need to really get themselves started there's still this stigma that people 
who have been incarcerated um, have to deal with. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people don't want folks necessarily repaired. They don't want communities to feel justice and to feel healing. Not that that would necessarily come from um, incarceration, but they don't necessarily want people to feel whole. It's about punishing whoever you know, committed a, a violent act or in the caller's case had some weed on them. You know, it's about punishing people and letting them know that um, what they did was wrong and that it may be a mark on them for the rest of their lives, you know, mm-hmm. which is, um, it only serves to hurt the communities that these folks come from, the places that are dealing with the most the, the places that have the most folks that are at risk of being incarcerated, of being shot, of having hypertension, of living somewhere that there's no grocery store. These are all a lot of the times the same demographics, you know. Yes. So it just kind of makes me think that these things are so much deeper than incarceration and um, how long we keep people behind bars, which like Ames mentioned, like they it does create this kind of cycle of different forms of violence, you yeah. know, yeah. and there's no effort taken to repair folks and make communities whole once they've served their time, once, you know, someone has been shot. And um, that's going to unfortunately keep these these cycles going because there's just not enough attention paid to the root causes of crime, nor to the ways that the justice system and police contribute to the hardships that people are facing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, quickly here, I want to go to one more caller, Parker in Detroit. I've only got about a minute and a half left, but I really want to get your story in here. Hey, so how you doing? So Good. in 1991, 10 years, the weekend of my 10-year uh, high school reunion, I left Detroit because of the crack plague. Mm. And I, went, I moved to Denver. And I grew wings I didn't even know I had. So fast forward, I traveled the world. I educated. I did everything I needed to do to get myself, uh, create a platform for myself. Mm. Fast forward, 2008, I came back to Detroit, but I came with a dark cloud over my head. I had issues, mental issues, and it took a while to recycle. Sometimes life just hit us like that. Four years, I came with $75,000, bought a piece of property, and four years into it, I found myself almost one step homeless because Mm. I lost, I I made a bad business deal. Mm. The only thing that saved me to keep me afloat in this city, and I, and I can't speak for most cities, is the fact that I came with skills and was able to pull myself up. Mm. Now, I'm a community artist. I work with a lot of young men and women that don't have skills. So the key to helping somebody to navigate the prison system is to give them skills. It doesn't have to include college. It could be vocational school. That is what, what really we need in this city since it's a manufacturing town. Everybody's not cut for college, yeah. but some some type of skill to help them maneuver and learn how to fish for not a day, but for a lifetime. It's a method. Yeah, that's, Parker. That's that, that's my Parker. I'm I'm glad you called and and shared that. And I wish I wish we had more time uh, to talk about uh, what you're talking about, which is the the solutions to this. Uh, Ames, I'll, I'll give you. I've got like 30 seconds, but I want you to to respond to what Parker's saying because you were talking about solutions earlier. Absolutely. And, and I just want to touch on, on one last point. I, I think we really need to stop and think about the fact that you know criminal records are in this country forever. And it yes. doesn't have to be that way. Other Western democracies aren't that way. Um, and that, that can create a problem where people don't have the opportunities that they need. And we need to be focusing on how to give all people a real first chance. And if they don't get that, then a real meaningful second chance. Yeah. We need to be a country that honors that. Yes. Okay, Ames Grauard and Avenet Clayton, really, really great to have both of you here with us uh, to talk about this today. Thanks so much for joining. 
Thank you. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about why a Michigan Supreme Court justice is deciding to retire from her position and what that means for our politics here in Michigan. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.